Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, this is Daniel Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario at the Bayat. Um, and we are uh, learning Morena Vuchim together, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We've been doing so for several years already. And uh, we are um, uh, on the webyeshiva.org platform. And I thank you for joining us today. Uh, we are studying now chapter five of the second section of Morena Vuchim. And if you'd like to follow along, we're going to actually be reading for a change. We'll be reading inside the text today um, because it is a pretty straightforward chapter, pretty straightforward text. And I guess you could say that the title of our discussion today is the Torah agrees with Aristotle on the heavenly bodies. And that's uh, really picking up from where we left off last week. Now, what we mean by that is that um, Maimonides had spent a large amount of time uh, uh, in our previous chapter, giving us a breakdown of what, according to Aristotle's conception, what the heavenly bodies were comprised of. And the Rambam had, had laid down this principle that each heavenly sphere, and we won't go through the whole discussion again about uh, the Ptolemaic planetary system that Aristotle subscribes to, but each concentric sphere which surrounds our planet is comprised of three things. Number one, it has a soul that animates it. Number two, it possesses an intellect. And number three, it possesses will or desire to do the will of God. And uh, essentially, because each sphere receives ultimately its emanation, its life force from God, uh, or from what Aristotle would call the prime mover, each sphere in the in the course of its motion is emulating the creator and is trying to fulfill god's will by emanating itself down to that which is lower than itself in a way in, imitative of god um, this is the way aristotle presented it and the the objective of this chapter is for the rambam to demonstrate that judaism and its classical writings in the torah and in the words of chazal the words of our sages in our oral tradition subscribe wholeheartedly to this idea that there is sentience and intelligence to the heavenly bodies. And uh, I'm going to bring up my, uh, bring up the document that we're going to be working with today. But as I mentioned, we're going to be spending um, most of our time actually focusing on the, the text of Maimonides. So let me share my screen. And here we are. Okay, so in order to understand the text that we have in front of us, let me, um, let's begin chapter five. It's on page 259 in the Shlomo Pines edition. He says, as for the assertion that the spheres are living, which means they have a soul, and they are rational, which means they possess intellect, 
I mean to say, endowed with apprehension, it is true and certain also from the point of view of the law, meaning the, the Torah. The Torah corroborates this, and you don't just need to rely on Aristotle. They are not dead bodies similar to fire and earth as thought by the ignorant, but they are, as the philosophers say, living beings who obey their Lord and praise and extol him greatly. Thus, scripture says, the heavens tell of the glory of God and so on. Many of us who daven regularly are probably for, 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 for familiar with this passage. I'd like to ask everyone if you could, here we go, if everyone could please mute themselves if you are joining this call. Um, if you could please mute yourself, thank you. Um, so here is the Pasuk, it is from Psalms 19. Um, and it's something that we pray on Shabbat morning as part of the extended Psuke de Zimra. And it says, HaShamayim Esaprim Kavod Kel, Adav Magid HaRakia, that the heavens relate the glory of God, and his heavy work is informed by the heavens. Okay, I'm going to have to ask, just expand the screen for a second. There we go. Thank you, whoever's there. To, thank you for muting yourself. Um, okay, so the the heavens tell of the glory of God and so on. How very remote. So you see from this verse that the heavens have this ability to communicate. And in order to communicate, you must be a being of sentience. So the Rambam takes this verse very literally and says this is indicative of the fact that we in our Torah literature believe that heavenly bodies, the stars, the spheres, the planets, have sentience and can communicate in some way. And the communication is in some way praise of the creator. How very remote from mental representation of the truth are those who think that this is language appropriate to the state of the speaker. Um, now, what he means by this, I, I don't think it's such a great translation, but what uh, he is suggesting is the Rambam says, I am aware that there are some people who take this verse metaphorically. And they basically say, like we've seen that principle before, that many times scripture speaks in a way that is um, euphemistic or anthropomorphic in order to make uh, things easier for us to understand. That's what he means by a language appropriate to the state of the speaker. When we see um, uh, human beings acting in an admirable way, emulate, emulative of noble, noble people and noble ideals, so then we say that those people are communicating nobility or something like that. And therefore there is a possibility that this verse is not to be taken literally. Now the Rambam here is clearly referring to, as the commentaries point out, is referring to someone in particular. He's referring to Rav Sajigon. In his Emunot V'deot, chapter two, paragraph 10, Rabbi Sajia deals with the issue of this Pasuk, and he discusses the whole idea of anthropomorphic terms that are used to describe God. Now, the Rambam is no stranger to this topic. The Rambam, after all, has also discussed this issue extensively throughout the first section of Moron Ruchim. And so um, uh, the Rambam had written that any time 
we see body parts assigned to God like Rosh and Ozen, head and ear and face and mouth and so forth, these are not to be taken literally, they are, they are metaphorical or they might have a different meaning depending upon the context. And after Ribsajugon says that, Ribsajya says as follows, just like there are anthropomorphic terms used to describe God which cannot be taken literally, he then says, and here is it, here it is in the text, that we know that language works this way, that language will sometimes be expansive and extrapolative and will try to pique our imagination and provide us with parables. Essentially, there is allegorical and metaphorical speech just like this type of metaphor is, is applied when it says that the heavens express something. As it says in Psalms 19, that the heavens relate the glory of God. Or that the ocean speaks. As he, and he quotes scripture, that this, the, the heavens, or sorry, the seas, the, the waters of the ocean speak. Or that death itself is personified. And, it, it, and there's a verse in Eob that talks about death speaking, or that inanimate rocks can speak. And, and he goes through a whole list of various different examples. So Rabsajigon clearly does not believe that the heavens communicate. But the Rambam says, once you've seen this in Aristotle, that there is this type of sentience assigned to heavenly bodies, there's nothing wrong with taking this literally. Indeed, it is meant to be taken literally. And the Rambam uh, reinforces this point because he says for the terms Haggadah and Sipur, which is speaking and telling, are applied together in Hebrew only to a being endowed with intellect. That's important to note that the Rambam himself has, and we'll see this in just a moment, that there is metaphor to allegorize um, inanimate objects as having speech, um, and it's not to be taken literally. But here the Rambam says there is no need to suggest that this terminology is meant allegorically, especially by virtue of the fact that so much language is used to describe the communication of the heavens. The manifest proof of the fact that scripture describes their state according to their essence I mean to say the state of the sphere is not the state according to metaphor, what people consider them, is the dictum, is this other pasuk, this other verse in Tehillim, chapter 4, verse 5, which says, Rigzu v'al techetau, imru vilvavchem al mishkavchem v'domusela. It says, Rigzu, be in a state of fear and therefore do not sin. Imru vilvavchem, say to your hearts, on your beds, and be silent, Selah. Uh, so he translates that as there is no speech, there are no words, neither is their voice heard. And um, uh, I'm sorry, I was reading actually from a verse in, in Psalms chapter four, but the Rambam basically says, um, if you take a look at the, the later verse in, in Psalms 19, it says, Ein omer devarim, nishma kolam, that the heavenly bodies, that are purported to be communicating and speaking is that communication is done without speech, without hearing their voice. 
why is so much detail spent in trying to explain how the heavens communicate if it's meant metaphorically? It does, so the Rambam writes, it thus makes it clear and manifest that it describes the essence of the spheres as praising God and making known his wonders without speech of lip and tongue. So how does that, how is that called speaking? If you're not speaking with your lip and your tongue and you're not verbalizing, you're not creating words, what exactly does it mean to speak? So the Rambam's going to explain this to us in just a second. He says, this is correct. For he who praises through speech only makes known what he has represented or illustrated to himself. Now, what that means is, is that when I speak to you, I am not, um, I am merely creating a verbal representation of the idea that is in my mind. So for example, I may wish to describe for you a, a picture of a boat uh, uh, on the marina, and I will try to describe it for you as best as I can. But the words that I am using are really um, just representations of the image that I have in my mind of a boat that is docked in the marina. If I want to express a passion that I have, an excitement that I have about something, and I say, you know, you should go read this book, it's amazing. And I try to describe the excitement that I have about this book that I've just read. My words really only capture a small portion of the feeling, the emotion that I have internally, the excitement that I have about the reading of this book, about the content of its, of its, uh, 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 you know, of the story. He says, the representation is the true praise, whereas the words concerning it are meant to instruct someone else or make it clear concerning oneself that one has the apprehension in question. He says, the, the real feeling, the more, uh, the more genuine, uh, representation of what's going on in my mind is the feeling that I have or the image that I have in my head. My words are just a, a facsimile of that and I try my best to represent what I'm thinking by using words. And what the Rambam is essentially saying is that therefore nonverbal communication is possible as long as I can transmit to the, to the onlooker, to the, to the listener, or to the perceiver that is outside of me, what I am feeling internally. And so as long as I can communicate what I am feeling internally, that is called speech in the larger sense of the word. And thus it says, I apologize for jumping the gun and quoting that verse prematurely, but that's what that verse means. Speak in your hearts on your beds and be silent. If you'll notice the Rambam, as we have explained, the Rambam had made reference to this idea back in Mora, section one, chapter 50. And I'll just give you a snippet of that chapter, uh, which we bring uh, from a different translation. It says, when reading my present treaties, bear in mind that by faith, we do not understand merely that which is uttered with the lips, but also that which is apprehended by the soul the conviction that the object of belief is exactly as it is apprehended. The, the Really, the, the subject of this chapter, chapter 50 in section one, was that the Rambam feels that it is the responsibility of every sentient being, of every thinking human being, to use their intellect to affirm and understand our faith principles. It is not enough to just parrot things and say, I believe with a complete faith, 
that such and such is true. I believe in God or uh, I believe in, in reward and punishment or I believe that Moses is the prophet. It is necessary to actually represent these ideas and well embed them in one's intellect until one actually understands the concepts. The words themselves are insufficient. He says, therefore, if as regards real or supposed truth, you content yourself with giving utterance to them in words without apprehending them or believing in them, especially if you do not seek real truth, you have a very easy task as, in fact, you will find many ignorant people professing articles of faith without connecting any idea with them. And that's really the theme of the chapter is that it is the human's responsibility to, uh, uh, to actually comprehend that which they say or believe to be true. Rather, and this the last part of the chapter says, rather it is right that a man should belong to that class of men who have a conception of truth and understand it, even though they don't speak it. In other words, there are some people who talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. In other words, they're capable of making faith affirmations verbally, even though they don't really understand what they're saying. But it is far better, says the Rambam, to not say anything and to have faith affirmations firmly embedded within your intellect. Sometimes these faith affirmations may be so esoteric in nature that they defy proper verbalization to be put into actual words. And he says, thus the pious are advised and addressed, commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. So the Rambam had made reference to this idea before, that communication, a real communication, is not just to use words, but actually to try to transfer what is inside of me over to somebody else, and it can be done non-verbally as well. And the Rambam also makes reference to this in chapter 64. When he talks about the word kavod in Hebrew and he tries to define it, one of the definitions of the word kavod, the glory of God, denotes the glorification of the Lord by man or by any other being. For the true glorification of the Lord consists in the comprehension of his greatness, and all who comprehend his greatness and perfection glorify him according to their capacity with this difference, that man alone magnifies God in words, expressive of what he has received in his mind, and what he desires to communicate to others. But the whole idea of harboring a thought in your mind, that's the real part of human knowledge of human sentience. And as ultimately is witnessed in this chapter of the sentience assigned to celestial bodies as well. So the Rambam is, can, has, is convinced that even though there is no mouth to the moon, and the celestial bodies do not speak with actual words, but their form of communication is the knowledge that emanates from them, their motion, and the fact that they are emulating their creator. All of this is a form of communication that they are showing praise to, to, to their creator. So he, in, in, in going along with this, he says, uh, this is a proof based on the Torah, that may be denied only by one who is ignorant or obstinate, again, making reference to other commentators on these verses. As for the opinion of the sages concerning this, so now that we've demonstrated this is true based on verses in Tanakh, now let's go and look at the Torah Shabbat, the words of our sages. And our sages tell us, I do not think, Rambam says, I do not think that it requires to be explained or proved because there are so many passages uh, that are contained in the words of our sages that assign sentience to the heavenly bodies. He says, consider the way they arranged the blessing of the moon. 
Um, uh, so what does he mean by that? When we do Kiddush Levana once a month, we say a blessing. And we basically thank God for having created all of the heavenly bodies and all of the heavenly host he has created with the spirit of his mouth. And the, the blessing, which is in source number six on your handout, uh, they are rejoicing, rejoicing and mirthful to do the will of their creator. Um, and so this idea that there is some kind of emotional uh, um, feeling that these heavenly bodies are are sensing as they continue their uh, their orbits, as they continue their motions, implies when we recite this bracha that there is some level of sentience to these heavenly bodies. They have emotions, and they are they are happy to be in this, their state of orbit. So, what do we mean by that? According to the Rambam, that is to be taken literally, as Aristotle suggests, as well as what is repeatedly stated in the prayers and the texts of the Midrashim regarding the dicta. And, and this is now a Pasuk from Nehemiah that we say in our prayers in the Psuke de Zimra. Uh, but if you take a look at the way the Talmud understands it um, in source number seven, Amarle Antoninus Larebi. Uh, uh, Antoninus, the great uh, Roman ruler, once asked his friend Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Why is it that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west? And Rabbi said, well, if it rose in the west and set in the east, you would have the same question. No, what I mean to ask you is as follows. What is the significance of the sun specifically setting in the West? What is it about the West that draws the sun towards it? And the answer is, is that the sun has this drive to meet the creator in the West, because according to tradition, the, uh, the, the divine presence is in the West. And so, therefore, the sun is constantly going out to become closer and closer to, to, to uh, the Supreme Being. As it says in Nehemiah, that the heavenly host bow down to you, O Lord. And so, again, the Rambam says, our sages take this quite literally as well. And another example that he brings is from, again, the Babylonian Talmud, this time from Tractate Chulin. Uh, where it says, that the heavenly host, referring to the angels, and as we'll see in the following chapter, in chapter 6 next time, we'll see that the Rambam equates the heavenly angels, the celestial angels, he, com he says that that is none other than the intelligences of these heavenly uh, spheres. He says, they say, their praise to God, but they must wait for Israel to say their praise down below of Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. And that triggers the angels of Apai to also say the, uh, the, the tripled statement of holy, holy, holy. Shanamar, and how do I know this? So again, this is the sages using a verse in Tanakh, this time from the book of Job, chapter 38, that says, Biron Yachad Kochve Voker that when all of the stars of the morning sing together, then 
that afterwards um, they sing forth all of the sons of God. Now, the way that the Talmud refer, uh, understands that is Beron Yachad Koch Bevoker refers to the Jewish people. When the Jewish people who are the stars of the morning, those uh, pious individuals who arise early in the morning to sing together to God and say, holy, 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 then then the, the, the children of God, referring to the angels, will sing forth. And so the, um, the Rambam says, this too is a, a way of assigning sentience to the heavenly bodies. And he says, um, a similar dicta occur frequently in what they say, and thus they say in Bereshit Rabbah with regard to the dictum of him, may he be exalted. Um, and, and by the way, it's altogether possible that the Rambam understands this, um, uh, this verse in Eov as a reference to the singing of the stars, although it's not clear to me based on the way that he's citing the Talmud, how that would be so. But it could be that there's a process of where the Jews, Israel, sing to God down below, which triggers the stars and which triggers the angels above as well. It's not clear. But in any event, he says, similar dicta occur frequently in what they say. Thus, they say in Bereshit Rabbah, they say in the Medrash, with regard to the dictum of him may be exalted, that the world was tohu vavohu. When God first created the world, it was chaos and void. But the word tohu vavohu, according to the Medrash, means tohe ubohe, means to, uh, to be mourning and crying. And why was the uh, world crying? world was crying because uh, because it says the, the the earth when it saw all of creation it said that the upper realm and the lower realm were created simultaneously because it says in the beginning God created heaven and earth but but the upper realm the beings who belong in the upper realm are alive are alive and the beings, um, the objects of the lower realm, meaning all of the, you know, that which is, uh, exists in this world that is made of matter is dead. Rocks, mountains, trees are, are not alive in the same way that the sentient heavenly spheres are alive. And that's the reason why the world was in a state of mourning and crying because of her evil lot. Uh, okay. They have also explicitly stated that the heavens are living bodies and not dead ones like the elements. Thus, it has become clear to you what Aristotle said likewise with regard to the spirit being endowed with apprehension and mental comprehension corresponds to the dicta of our prophets and of the bearers of our law, who are the sages, may their memory be blessed. And so the Rambam is not suggesting that everything that exists, everything that God created possesses sentience. The Rambam is not a pantheist in that respect. The Rambam acknowledges that inanimate objects are inanimate objects. But when you see celestial bodies moving, when you see the planets in motion and the stars in motion, it is because there is a sentience that is assigned to them. Now, whether or not this is true, we really have no evidence one way or the other. Um, and I'm not here to um, contest what the Rambam is saying based on modern science, because for all we know, there may be a sentience that the planets and these huge 
uh, gassy stars and planets may possess. Who knows whether Saturn and Jupiter uh, have sentience or even our own planet has sentience. But the fact of the matter is that the Rambam is trying to demonstrate that Aristotle's science is in accord with the Torah. And we can use Aristotelian science to help us understand better what Hashem wants us to about his world uh, because it is in sync with what the Torah states about reality. And let's, let's finish this chapter. Know that there is a consensus of all the philosophers to the effect that the governance of this lower world is perfected by means of the forces overflowing to it from the sphere, as we have mentioned, and that the spheres apprehend and know that which they govern. And this is an important point that the Rambam is going to bring up again in ensuing chapters, is that a, um, a heavenly sphere, uh, the, the heavenly spheres in general, influence the reality on our planet, uh, in, in our in our matter reality. Because as we've said many times before, Aristotle, Aristotle believed that the motions of the spheres actually bring rise to all of matter and all shapes and forms and things that exist on our planet. And they, it's called a spillover or overflowing from the spheres to bring both intellect and matter and form to our planet. Uh, and therefore, there is a, an awareness that the spheres have that they are responsible for what is happening down here. This also is expounded in the letter of the Torah, which says, which the Lord thy God has allotted unto all the peoples. Now, this is a verse from um, Parshat Va'et Hanan in the book of Deuteronomy. And in verse, uh, you'll see this is source number 10. The Torah says, Ufentisa lest you lift up your eyes to the heavens. And you will see the sun, the moon, and the stars. The whole entire heavenly host. And you will turn astray. And instead of worshiping God, you will worship these celestial bodies. In reality, God had allotted these celestial bodies for some purpose over all of the nations uh, that are that exist underneath the heavens. Now, the way the Rambam understands this verse is as follows, which means that he made the spheres intermediaries for the governance of the created beings and not with a view to their being worshipped. In other words, he looks very carefully at the verbiage of the verse uh, and he says, it says clearly, um, and we'll actually get to the next Pasuk momentarily, but he says, if you look carefully at this verse, it says that you would be wrong to worship the heavenly bodies because even though they are assigned with sentience, that their purpose is not to be worshiped, but rather they were allotted by God to act as intermediary forces to bring about um, whatever phenomena occur in this world uh, via them. But they are ultimately receiving their powers from God. And therefore, God wants only him to be worshipped and not his intermediary forces. What you see from this verse also is that God has allotted these beings, these heavenly bodies, with responsibility of making sure and maintaining everything that exists on our planet. Again, uh, implying a sentience 
a connection uh, uh, um, with the world that is down here. It says clearly, v'limshol bayomu valayla, ula havdil. It says in the in the, the first chapter of Genesis that God created the the heavenly bodies to rule over day and night and to create a separation between light and darkness. Now, the meaning of ruling is dominion through governance. The first part of the verse that says, Vilim shol valayla, means that God created the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars, for two separate purposes. One is to create light and to differentiate between night and day, but that's the second purpose of the heavenly bodies. The first purpose of the heavenly bodies is what he calls Vilim shol valayla, to govern or to rule over day and night, which means that these heavenly bodies have a role to play in influencing everything that goes on in our world. And this is a supplementary notion added to that of light and darkness, which is the proximate cause of generation and corruption. The heavenly bodies are responsible for everything that is created and destroyed, uh, that is given rise to reality and decomposes over the course of time. Because again, according to Aristotelian science, all natural phenomena that we can gauge on this planet are a product of the celestial spheres. For the meaning of darkness, of light and darkness is referred to in the words and, uh, and to divide between light and darkness. So the first part must be referring to something else, which is what he says is to govern our planet. It is absurd to assume that he who governs something should not know that thing which he governs. And therefore, the Rambam just applies this to the idea that we've been trying to get across up until now. If the function of the celestial bodies is to control and to influence everything that goes on down here, it would be ridiculous to think that they, the celestial bodies are not aware of what is going on down here. Um, they must have some level of sentience to control, to be aware of what they are controlling. That's the whole argument because the idea of governance for the Rambam means that, I, that is, I am referring to a being who governs, who is sentient and aware of what they are governing. As the word is applied here is known. We shall speak at length about this subject elsewhere. The reason why he's going to be speaking about this subject elsewhere is because the Rambam is going to use this idea to talk about God himself. That uh, when we talk about providence, when we talk about God's awareness of what is going on down here, God can only govern properly as the ultimate supreme ruler if he is aware of what is going on down here. And that's one of the greatest proofs of God's providence. So this idea does not only apply to the celestial bodies, but it also applies to God himself. Now, of course, where are we going with this? Our next chapter will be to translate this sentience that has now been assigned and intelligence that has been assigned to the heavenly bodies and also point out that whenever we find the Torah talking about angels, that too refers to these Aristotelian sentient heavenly bodies. There is no difference between a malach, an angel, and a, a sentient heavenly body. They are one and the same, just using different terminology. Well, we've gone a little bit over time. I apologize about that, but uh, that sort of sums up our chapter for today. And uh, we will continue Bezrat Hashem with chapter six. When we talk a little bit about angels, we'll encounter that next time. I hope you have a great rest of the week and we'll see you soon.